1: It's Beemaz and Beamer News Radio nine thirty W
3: B E N. Ah, my name is Boston's. They're as gone as Milltown Mel. Joe.
0: Oh, well, <laughs> the Boston's could actually come back. <laughs> they
3: could. Well, I mean, Punk Satani's still alive. Maybe so can Mel. Um, welcome, <laughs> B-Maz and Beamer on W B E N. We got a lot to get to today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Attorney Terry Connors in just a moment. First, Joe, I got to send this out. I just need a a yes or no, a general feeling on our text board, eight zero three zero nine thirty. My oven stopped working yesterday, which is the worst, by the way. You know, you put something in the oven, and if you're like me, you put it in, you set the timer, you don't really think about it until it beeps, right? And you know, then you find, oh well, this thing wasn't on. <laughs> The whole time it wasn't working, so everything in here is still cold. So, you
0: had a dish sitting in the oven? Oh, yeah. For
3: a, an, an, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then you figure it out. I need um, the. So, I thought, oh, the pilot light must be out. And I'm like, oh, it, ovens don't have pilot lights anymore, even if uh, it's a gas oven. So, I need to change the igniter Ooh. in the oven. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I can just do it myself, but I just want to double check on the text board 8030930. Can I change? It seems pretty simple. Can I change the igniter on my gas oven? The only thing that worries me is gas. Yeah, that's, that's the only that's but the I mean, big thing. I installed the gas dryer. I mean, it's working. Oh, fine. you did? Yeah. I mean, oh. that's it. I'm thinking it won't be that big of a deal.
0: Yeah. I mean, you are a lot better. With, I mean, I'm obviously not the person to ask. That's why you're asking the people on the text board yeah. because I obviously can't do anything. I'm not a handyman. <laughs> I barely can assemble the stuff that they give you the instructions for.
3: It doesn't seem that hard, is it? If you've done it before, let me know. Eight oh three oh nine thirty. Um A lot of big stories to get to today. In the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University talking about a, a lot of the COVID picture. Uh, but first, uh, breaking news yesterday, bombshell lawsuit in pro football. Former Dolphins head coach, and by former, we mean like two weeks ago, he was the Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores, filing a lawsuit against the NFL. Against the New York Giants and others over alleged racial discrimination in the NFL. Uh, Attorney Terry Connors is our uh, legal expert on this matter. Uh, Terry, there's so much in this uh, lawsuit. Uh, There's, I mean, allegations of, you know, people going around the Rooney rule. You have this allegation of uh, paying a coach to tank. Um, how do you kind of sort through all the, you know, headlines and find what really matters as it pertains to the actual allegation?
4: Well, it's an interesting question. You called it a, uh, a bombshell lawsuit, and uh, I think lawyers would call it a blockbuster lawsuit because it carries with it allegations over a lengthy period of time. They're trying to pursue a class action, not just an individual action on behalf of Coach Flores. And so that's why they loaded up on the facts. If you read the complaint, it's 58 pages long, but it is so heavy with factual allegations as to give it some credence, some, some semblance of credibility right on the pleadings themselves. So the way you sort through it is you have to determine, are the facts accurate? Is there something in those facts that established that there was disparate treatment on, because of race and, uh, And that caused him some harm. And so the way you look at it is you parse the lawsuit. You look through and you say, all right, I've got the Belichick text. I've got the John Gruden allegations. I've got the other information about prior coaches who were denied the opportunity. Is that true? Is that true? Can we establish that? And, of course, the defense will look to pick it apart and say there are race-neutral explanations for the reason that Brian was not hired.
3: To me, the whole thing boils down to, you know, the the meat of it is the allegation that, okay I was interviewed for the job of head coach over at the New York Giants only to satisfy this rule the NFL has, you know, known as the Rooney rule that says a minority candidate has to be interviewed for a certain number of positions, you know, assistant uh, coaches, head coach. And managerial positions. Is that something, is there something legally that can be claimed there, or is that simply an NFL rule that would have to be, uh, you know, if somebody was found to be in violation, punished by the league? Uh, How do you see that?
4: Well, it's an NFL rule for sure. It's not codified in any statute or law of the state or federal laws. But here's where it comes into play, and it's really interesting. And it's why they started out the complaint. The class action complaint starts with the Belichick quote. They, they don't make any allegations about jurisdiction. They go right to the heart of the matter. And the reason they do that is because they can say now that the Rooney rule is a sham because three days before uh, Brian's interview with the New York Giants, our own Brian Dable had already been selected. So that's, that's what they call prima facie. That's on its face uh, discrimination,
0: and it's just a sham interview that they're going through the motions. What kind of situation does this put a Bill Belichick in? Uh, you talk about having to um, go through the evidence, and the main thing of this is that that text with Bill Belichick. Is he now going to be put in a position where he's going to have to talk about what he knows and how he knew it?
4: Yeah, Coach Belichick's deposition is going to definitely be taken. He'll be a witness in the case, and they'll. And if the case goes forward and doesn't settle, Elichek will be a witness in the case.
3: What do you, you know, I, I look at the situation, and I think all of us, you know, as outsider football fans, right, expected, and you know what, the Bills are, are not in all that different of a situation themselves. Uh, we'll get that, that in a moment, but a lot of us expected that, you know, Brian Dable, New York Giants, it makes sense. Here's a guy who has been talked about for over a year as a potential head coach. They hired a guy who used to work for the Bills as their general manager, and he hired a guy who used to work for the Bills, who he knows, as his head coach. Um, If something was predetermined like that, and they did have to do an interview to satisfy the rule, you can say that's right or wrong, but is it
4: illegal? Well, one of the strongest points of the defense is the fact that Brian Dable is eminently qualified to be coach of the New York Giants. It's not as though they put someone in place, denied Brian Flores the job on the basis of racial discrimination. They put a well-qualified person who has demonstrated his ability in the league. So that's a point for the defense, no question about that. Uh, But the issue isn't really as much about Brian Dable's qualifications as about the process itself. Was the process fair? I mean, obviously, if... The interview, if the job was not offered to Brian Dable before the interview of of Brian Flores, no problem. Case over, no case at all, in fact. But now they've dredged up all of the other past sins of the NFL. You you read this complaint, it reads like a really bad narrative of anything and everything that happened. They go back and talk about Coach Gruden. I mean, everything is plumbed up from the very bottom to establish discrimination.
3: You mentioned, is the process fair? Where does that uh, falter, right? I, I'm trying to think of, you know, in hiring practices in, I mean, we'll use professional sports. I mean, if they brought in Tom Brady to replace a a black quarterback, I mean, you could say, well, I, that might not be fair. They didn't have an open competition in training camp or, or something like that. They ended up cutting one in favor of the other. Um, where does that begin and end, uh, having a fair hiring process? Are you allowed to, you know, take somebody who, as you mentioned, okay, this person's very qualified. We want him. um, We don't have to necessarily open it up to everybody else.
4: No, you're perfectly, it's perfectly permissible to hire someone like that as qualified, as long as you don't engage in discrimination against the other candidates. Now, that's the tough part to prove. That's where all the circumstantial evidence, the prior acts in the NFL, all of the other uh, aggrieved coaches will have to come in to establish that this is just one more aspect of the systemic racism, that's what they call it, in in the NFL. So that's a matter of proof for trial. And keep in mind, this is not just an individual action. This is a class action. And today on talk radio, I heard the
0: attorneys for Brian Flores say, other coaches will soon join us in this class action. Yeah, you know, and what does that prove to to make it non-circumstantial? You know, I look at what's going on in Minnesota. They interviewed the Giants defensive coordinator yesterday, but all signs are they're going to bring Jim Harbaugh in and interview him. I mean, are they going to, how will they prove that this isn't just a circumstantial, that this is actually, they brought someone in on multiple occasions, knowing that they weren't going to hire him?
4: Yeah, in that situation, they would put the qualifications of the individual coaches on a scale, and they would match them up. And if it, you know, they can show that the qualifications of the white coach prevails, there is no case. They can't do it. The problem here is the allegation that there was a decision made even before they allowed Brian Flores an opportunity to interview. That, that's why they brought this lawsuit. Uh, you know, otherwise, it's a very steep hill to climb. And so on top of that, they will allege all of the past indiscretions. I mean, they go back to 2002 when Johnny Cochran was involved in an extensive report that, in his opinion, uh, outlined all of the problems with racial disparity in coaching. All the inequities were put into a report back 20 years ago. So that's what they're going to have to decide. And you know what? If they get past the motion phase, ultimately a jury will be the arbiter of those facts.
0: And what you know, it's a class action lawsuit. Um, The Rooney rule is what people are looking at. At the end, what what do you think? And I know this is uh, uh, looking far into the future. But what do you think will be the outcome of something like this? um, If it does go far?
4: Well, let me pull out my crystal ball here for a second. Uh, It's a little difficult to predict because keep in mind the relief that is being sought is not just monetary damages. It's injunctive relief. They want an injunction to change the entire hiring practices of the NFL. So here's what I think will probably happen. They'll get into some heavy discovery and motion practice about the contents of the complaint. But in the final analysis, it wouldn't surprise me if the NFL came forward and said, we're willing to change our rules. We're willing to you know, adapt rules that are more consistent with your position, that can show you and establish you on an objective basis that we will not discriminate against coaches. And and maybe that will resolve the case. That's a possibility, a possible outcome. If that doesn't work, and if the case is not settled, it will then go to a jury to make the decisions about the monetary relief and the non-monetary relief. But now you're talking three, four, five years down the road. I mean, look how long. Remember the Curt Flood case? Look how long that took. It ended up in the Supreme Court of the United States.
3: It's interesting stuff. I I, I loved having the opportunity to unpack it with you. Hey, Terry, thanks so much. Terry Condor's attorney our guest, uh, talking a little bit about what's happening here in the NFL. I I think it is difficult to you know look at. I mean, yesterday, if you were following this at all, you're kind of hit over the head with, oh, and, and there's text from Bill Belichick. Yeah. And $100,000 per loss and a meeting with a mystery quarterback on a yacht and this uh, Brian Dable and – I, I mean, it was one thing after another, and, you know, you got to take a second to slow down and say, well, okay, well, hang on a second. You know, what is actually, uh, you know, pertinent to anything that would be uh, considered illegal? Uh, hopefully, Terry Connors helped us sort through that just a little bit. I, it, it, to me, it's very interesting, Joe. I, I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is the NFL has this rule, and It's flawed. The NFL, I I mean, you can hear uh, people disparagingly call it uh, an old boys club. And it very much is. You know, people know people. I mean, look at, you mentioned Belichick. Who's his, you know, defensive coordinator? It's his son. I mean, you know, (laughs) things stay with the people you know, people in the family. And what the NFL is basically trying to do is speed up breaking that apart to make the league more diverse. And, uh, see, if you left it to itself, I would have no doubt that over a lengthy period of time, you'd probably get there uh, with more diversity. Uh, but what the NFL is trying to do is speed that up a little bit. Now, how do you speed it up without actively interfering, without you know just placing certain coaches somewhere? Their answer was this Rooney rule that said somebody has to be interviewed, which, you know, in cases like this, Joe, right, I mean, kind of it's begging to be misused
0: that that's the thing and and i don't mean to be offensive but that's what this rooney rule seems to be doing and and again you can just look at where where the interviews have been for other teams and who ended up getting hired you brought up the bills uh we see what's going on in minnesota Uh, and you know it's unfortunate but it seems okay you have to do this you're just setting up for sham interviews uh, I, I know it's it's the the rule was made with good intentions but as you said brian i i do think it sets up for this scenario but you
3: just have to look at the reaction to all the news that broke yesterday you know people oh stunned by some of the allegations in here nobody was stunned by the idea that teams are interviewing a black or other minority coaches because they have to just to kind of check a box, right. so to speak. I mean, nobody was kind of stunned at the idea that that happened. That is, you know, likely, as we said, likely going to happen with the rules. So how is that rule? How can it be a little bit different if they want to achieve their goal? And Maybe it's a greater incentive to teams to, you know, have these interviews. Maybe it's opening up. Uh, they did it a little bit this year, the interview process where you can talk to coaches earlier yep. than you used to. You can have a a little bit of a longer process. Um, you know, I, I don't know how that really goes. As far as Flores himself, i I don't know about him. I mean, you know, for him to be making these claims, i I'm not sure if he's the best person. Because I, there were a lot of people were stunned that he was uh, fired by the Dolphins. I was not among those people. Uh, you, you look at the Miami; he had three years in Miami, uh, a losing record overall, a winning record the past two years, yep. but overall losing record, uh, mostly due to that first year, which he said was, uh, you know, a tank, which everyone kind of looked at. As a tankier. He was paid to, be, to tank. Um, oh, allegedly. Allegedly, sorry. Um, and, oh, and he didn't accept it, so he wasn't paid. Oh, yeah, um, right, right. Yes, <laughs> Joe. Um, but the way he handled things in Miami, I mean, there seemed to be a serious disconnect between him, the general manager, who, um, I forget his first name. All I know is that he's related to Mike Greer. He's his cousin, you know, the former Sabre. And the owner, that they were not on the Chris same. Greer. Chris Greer, that's right. They were not on the same page at all. Just look at the way he handled their quarterback. Yep. I mean, their quarterback was healthy. He wasn't playing him. I mean, there's obviously some tension there, and it's not like they were. I mean, they finished third in the division this year. It's not like they were in the playoffs or you know doing something that said, "Well, we have to keep this guy around." So, uh, the firing itself is not that surprising, and then, you know, it's a small league. A word gets around, as you know we saw through text from Bill Belichick. A yep. Word gets around pretty quickly. <laughs> I, I would think that a lot of teams are probably looking at this, and while from the outside you might say, well, Brian Flores, hey, he didn't do that bad of a job in Miami. He should get another shot somewhere else, maybe with another team. I think inside the league, you know, they're more looking at, well, hey, here's a guy who really didn't get along with his past management and ownership. And look what he did to that quarterback. Is that what we really want to bring around on our team? So I, there's a million different ways you can look at it. Obviously, some of the things that are alleged in here are outrageous. The paying for losses is. Yes. I, is
0: and I'm sorry, you're right. He didn't accept. I, I meant to, I thought that was an. You're right. He did not accept it. He's alleging that it was it was offered. He is still up for the Texans job, by the way. Um, but you're the Giants. You've got a quarterback that a lot of people have question marks around. Maybe you don't bring in the guy who a lot say was the reason for Tua's problems in, in Miami. And Brian, I will look at one more thing, and not to pick on Brian Flores. Uh I, I wish him well. But two years in a row, you had a win and end scenario for the playoffs in both years. You lost by 20 or 30 points. So I, I just to put a kind of a cap on what we were talking about, him getting fired from the Dolphins.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, you know,
0: there's different points to be made here.
3: Um, his point isn't necessarily that he even should have been the Giants coach. His point is that he was given a sham interview, which right. I think is not something you're going to find a lot of people at face value disagree with him with, right? Uh, it seemed like they pretty much had pinned – Right. Brian Dable is their coach. He's very well known. Every, every one here was talking about it. I was going to say, it. even outside the league. Um, and, and then they had this interview. Anyway, so yeah, we'll see what happens there. I think it is very interesting. I, I don't know about you. After talking with Terry Connors, though, I would expect, Joe, that more of the fallout from this is going to be around some of the other allegations yes. that we saw. Um, more so than is the legal pro- – I mean, that could take, as
0: you know, Terry said, years to sort out. I do expect there to be a lot – and again, th- things will leak, as we saw with Washington. I think there will be a lot of uh, people wondering what Bill Belichick says when his deposition is uh, asked for, which, as Terry said, will, uh, will happen since he was one of the main yeah. people
3: mentioned here. A little bit of snafu. Get your uh, Brian straight in your phone. Everybody – Right. Get your Brian straight. That's right. There's, uh, I know there's a lot of us, but uh, <laughs> get your Brian straight when you're texting. Uh, coming up next, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University. He's going to be joining us. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about a COVID vaccine for infants, for kids as young as six months old, six months to four years. That is what is being applied for by pfizer uh could be available by the end of february now we did an interview earlier this morning with dr simone wilds from south shore health and you know i know i you get a lot of the feedback and it oh you know against vaccines you know brian i i was asking dr wilds i think i'm not anti-vaccine at all i i was asking her the questions that most parents are going to have and they want an answer to when it comes to the vaccine ages four months to five years. And you're going to have to have a good answer to those questions. And so far, they haven't been there. You know, what, why should? You know, what is the, the strong argument? And we heard from Dr. Wilds, well, you, you know, if uh, the kids are vaccinated, uh, they can't spread it a- at home. It's Well, wait a second. One, if they do spread it at home, this isn't March of 2020 anymore. It, people in the household can be vaccinated, right. protected in uh, a number of different ways. And as we've seen in the past number of months here, that doesn't hold true the same way it did a year ago. Uh, you know, if you're vaccinated, you can still get COVID. You can still spread COVID. That's why everyone has to wear a mask, right? Uh, at least that's what we're being told. Well, OK, if not that well, it... Um, you know might prevent symptoms um, or or something like that and okay in, in a group that's already really not going to be impacted severely how much more can you prevent symptoms in this age group which you know that's a legitimate question that i would imagine this data will have an answer to and then we got well it could make everyone feel better in the household and I don't know if that's what you want to go with. So we'll see what Dr. Adalja has to say to those. I mean, it's a few really important questions that are going to be asked a lot over the next month. And we'll be talking with him next on BMAS and Beamer on WBEM. <laughs>
1: it's Beamaz and Beamer. Now, Brian Mazurowski and Joe Beamer. News Radio 930 WBEN.
3: Right, welcome back to BMaz and Beamer on WBEN. Hope everyone's doing out there. Thank you for everyone who chimed in on our Volkswagen and Park text board helping me out. They said go for it. You know, change that. Uh, igni- <laughs> Joe's just... Mm. Joe doesn't know, you know, if he asked should I rake my own leaves? And you said, go for it. Joe might be uh, a little, you know, I don't know if I can handle that. I mean,
0: better you than I, because I know this is stuff you can do. I I can't. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I've never done it before. That's why I asked. I don't know if I can do it. You're more yeah. of a handy person than I am.
3: Uh, you can do stuff around the house. You could do you Watch a YouTube video. You can do anything. Mm. Uh, anyways, uh, we're looking at. The potential for a COVID vaccine for kids under five years old. The Pfizer is uh, applying for authorization from the FDA for exactly that. And our guest is Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University, one of our favorite guests we have on here on BMAS and BEAMER to kind of uh, sort through it. Uh, Amish, I want to play for you something that uh, we heard yesterday, uh, a uh, clip that was played a lot here on wben uh, dr alok patel uh, from stanford children's health uh, him talking about the vaccine
5: this is the timeline that all parents even kids are asking me about and i think it actually is pretty crucial because if you think about it getting a vaccine to kids will make school a little bit more normal child care a little bit more normal and then that has a trickle down effect in helping all those working parents and caretakers out there also
3: now aside from the part that you know kids are wondering when they can get their shot i'm not 100 i believe that but this idea that the covid vaccine for kids is great because it will make everything more normal i think is a very new york city san francisco uh people speaking idea because we have a lot of europe a lot of parts of america where Stuff is normal for kids. They go to school every day. People don't wear masks. Uh, you, you know, it's if you're sick, you stay home. Uh, aside from that, things are like normal for kids. And this idea that it makes well every, parents feel better almost. I, I, I'm not sure if that's a great reason for approving vaccination. I, where is your head at when it comes to the vaccine for kids under five?
5: Immunogenicity, but it is true that children are at very low risk for severe disease. But I think having a vaccine to minimize the disruptions of COVID nineteen, even if it is a mild disease, is a good thing. And and I don't think it's. I think it should be approved based on its safety and efficacy. But the the fact of the matter is, in this country, children's lives are so disrupted, and there is a group of parents. There is a there are there are student uh, uh, teachers' unions that have made it very difficult for children to have a normal life. And I think that's one of the, the silver linings of this vaccine or an extra benefit of the vaccine is that, yes, it's going to prevent COVID-19 issues in, in children, even though those, are, those tend to be rare, but it's also going to facilitate schools staying in person. And whatever the, re, whatever the rationale is behind the way that we've handled schools in the United States, which is the wrong way, the fact of the matter is, is that these disruptions are going to continue until more people are, are vaccinated, whether or not It's necessary or not. And and the fact is, it's a safe and effective vaccine. So I I don't have much. uh, I I advocate for parents to get their children vaccinated. But we live in a society where um, the the schools have been completely disrupted. And even though other places like Europe have had um, a much better time with their schools and, and a lot of good best practices, they're just not something that people in the United States will ever look to or accept.
3: When we say safe and effective vaccine, how is the equation for that different for this age group than it would have been for everybody else? Um, Because, you know, maybe a year ago when you thought, okay, well, you get the vaccine and you're just not going to get COVID, right? You're not going to get it. You're not going to spread it. uh, You know, the answer is maybe a little bit more clear. But now that we know, uh, you know, with time that that's not really going to be the case, uh, especially with some of the newer variants, um, what is the level? I I mean, how it's got to be a very fine line, right, between, you know, how much safer can you make somebody in this age group from this virus?
5: In, In terms of number needed to vaccinate to prevent one hospitalization in someone under the age of five, I think it's going to be very, very high because, as we said, these children are at very low risk for severe disease. Obviously, within that age group, there are going to be four-year-olds that have asthma or four-year-olds that have had a heart transplant or who have had cancer on chemotherapy, and those individuals are going to benefit greatly from being able to be vaccinated. But for the average healthy child, the benefit in preventing hospitalization is low, and they will get some benefit in, prevent- in prevention of infection, but it's going to be transient because of the Omicron variant's ability to evade uh, the immune response. And I think a lot of this is tied up, as we've said, with society's response to COVID-19 and the disruption in schools and what what's being demanded of of everyone to keep schools in person. And I think I, I think most policymakers understand this, I think, but it, but it's frustrating because there is a group of, of people that have really pushed for this vaccine for children. And because it's safe and effective, we've sort of given it a pass. But I think it doesn't it doesn't bode well that that the risk tolerance is so low and we have to also remember that if you look at vaccine uptake, children, so adults have a certain uptake. It's much lower for, for, for children for 16 to 17 year olds. It's lower still for 12 to 16 year, to 12 to 15 year olds. It's lower still for, for 5 to 11 year olds. And it's going to be even lower still for six months to, to four years. So what, what we're talking about is maybe 20% of, of parents will get their, their, vac- their, their children vaccinated. And that's probably where it's going to stand for some time, because that's where it stood in the 5 to 11 group, and it's a little bit higher in the other age groups. But the pediatric uptake has been poor. So I think it's, it, it, I think that, that there is an element that there is a group that's really clamoring for these types of things, that they want these things, and and it is a safe and effective vaccine, so I don't begrudge them that. But um, we're not going to get very high uptake. And the way that they're doing this with kind of not having the dosing sorted out for the 2 to 4-year group and having this being – the FDA asking for this information is highly irregular, and I think it probably will add to more vaccine hesitancy and will have lower uptake, as I said, with this age group.
0: You know, we still have people that are saying, you know, social media, and I know, you know, you can only take that for what it's worth, uh, you know, these vaccines to stop transmission, right? And we want kids to have vaccines to stop passing COVID uh, on to maybe the older population. But as it stands right now, especially with this variant, um, a, a vaccine really is for your protection uh, from a severe disease, right? We are seeing COVID passed from vaccinated people, unvaccinated people, especially with Omicron, correct?
5: The primary purpose is, and I think it's always been, that's what I've always said, you want to get vaccinated for yourself so you're protected against serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And with other prior variants, uh, there there was a a major impact on transmission. That's starting to be not as much of a benefit with Omicron because it can get around the protection provided by prior infection and the protection provided by vaccination. But it is true that a fresh vaccine, if you're freshly vaccinated or, or maybe even freshly boosted, you're going to have less chance of getting infected to begin with. Um, so, so that's going to make you less, less likely to, sp- to pass it. And it is also true that breakthrough infections are less contagious than people who have not been vaccinated. So a person who is vaccinated and gets infected with Omicron, yes, they can pass it on, but the time period that they pass it on is, is truncated versus someone who is not vaccinated. So in general, they do, they, they do have some benefit in terms of decreasing transmission, but it's not as, as good as it was with the alpha variant or even the delta variant. So that transmission blocking aspect of it is not the, is not the main selling point anymore. It's, it's more about severe disease, hospitalization, and death. The
3: idea keeps getting uh, thrown around in parts of the country that uh, vaccination would be mandated for going to school uh, for elementary age school kids. And now that it's opened up uh, for kids under five or it will be likely in the very near future, you would you can kind of see that expanding even further. That would seem to me to do much more harm than the opposite of having Uh, a child who's unvaccinated who you know two years into this the likelihood they've been exposed to COVID is pretty high
5: i don't think the vaccines do harm it may be harm from a political harm let me rephrase that
3: harm in the sense of keeping somebody out of a classroom because they don't have the vaccine
5: i think we have to come to a kind of societal understanding of what's going to happen with childhood immunization and school requirements because it's certainly the case that we vaccinate, children are required to be vaccinated against things like hepatitis B, which really doesn't transmit in schools, uh, or uh, they're, they're asked to be vaccinated against chickenpox, which is, is a much less severe disease than, than COVID-19 is. And, and that's not, doesn't have any controversy uh, that you have to be vaccinated against chickenpox to, to enter school. I don't. So I, I think that we have to take a step back and realize that people are making lots of uh, claims about the COVID-19 vaccine, but they didn't make those against chickenpox or hepatitis B, and I don't know why they're worried so much, why, why there's so much opposition to the COVID-19 vaccine, but these same people, where were they when the chickenpox vaccine was was required? So I think that a lot of this is kind of an illegitimate opposition to the vaccine, and I think, you know, the the the, the less disruption, infectious disease cause are, are better. I think schools should be able to set their own policies for what, what vaccine requirements that they have, and I don't think that COVID-19, the vaccine, is any different than requiring chickenpox vaccines, requiring rotavirus vaccines, you know, daycare centers require flu vaccines. I think that that's all in the same line of thinking. So I, I'm not sure why people single out the COVID-19 vaccine, which is probably safer than most of those, Is as safe as all of those other vaccines.
0: Dr. Andalja, uh, you look at ch- children getting the vaccine at a younger age, um, what would be, uh, I know- the, this, this changes, but what would be the um, the length of the effectiveness? Would this be something where younger children would have to get this every year? Uh, would they be uh, uh, required to get boosters? Uh, is getting it at a younger age preparing your body for when you're older so you don't have to keep on taking the vaccine? Uh, would there be a long-term benefit?
5: It's unclear. I think we still don't know that question for adults yet. We don't know what duration of immunity is going to be, and we also are not clear on what our goals are with these vaccines. Are they to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death, or are they to prevent um, all types of infections? Uh, if it's prevention of serious illness, hospitalization, and death, I think the standard re- regimen seems to be holding up, and everybody healthy, obviously, there's going to be people who are immunosuppressed and may need more, but in general, I think we have to come clear on what the goals are, and I don't think that those have been articulated well, and there's also second-generation vaccines that are coming Omicron specific vaccines, universal coronavirus vaccines. So I think we can't really set in stone what our future vaccine policy is going to be because we're just really at the beginning of understanding where we're going to go with vaccine technology and and optimal vaccine policy. And I don't think that's anything you can telegraph right now.
3: Uh, What we might be able to telegraph is, you know, kind of the future of all this. Right. And, and, you know, vaccines have been out for about a year now. We've had uh, over a year, actually, um, for, you know, many people and their ability to get that. We have seen, you know, the uptake numbers. They might be increasing slightly, but they kind of generally are where they are for the people who have been uh, able to get them uh, get a vaccine for a very long time. Uh, The question of when does this become endemic is being asked over and over. And I have a little bit of a problem with the question, you know, uh, to ask uh, whether it's yourself or somebody else. You know, okay, well, when do we reach uh, COVID becoming endemic? You know, when do we uh, go more about a normal life? And I think that's more of a collective mindset than anything one doctor or expert can answer. What about you?
5: I think how you go about your life and what risk is appropriate for you as a person, that's not something that can, that's going to be like an official declaration That's each person learning to risk calculate and understand that there's a COVID risk that they can't take down to zero and they've modified their behavior in there, or they have not modified their behavior. They're going about it. But to me, what would signify endemicity would be when we're not seeing 1,000 or 2,000 people dying every day because our endemic respiratory diseases don't kill like that. Uh, when we don't have to worry about hospital capacity day in and day out in many parts of the country, because our endemic respiratory viruses never do that uh, like that. So to me, that's the transition point. I worked in the hospital the last two days. that's, and I'm not dealing with an endemic disease there because we are still getting crushed. Um, we still have too too long of waiting times in the emergency department, too many people in the hospital with covid nineteen. That's not what an endemic disease does. So to me, it's the death's starting to fall, and and the hospitalizations uh, falling. And, and I think it's what's, what's interesting about this is the reason that we have these problems in the hospital is completely self-inflicted. It's because people are choosing not to be vaccinated and then choosing to come to their hospital and choosing to crush the people working there day in and day out. That's, that's why we're not in an endemic disease because the people of this country have chosen not to use the technology that makes it endemic, that tames the virus. They've shunned the vaccine and too many of them have high risk conditions And too many of them require hospital care.
0: Doctor, last time you joined us, you said that the the patients you see in the hospital are mostly unvaccinated. um, And it's not people that haven't been boosted. It's people that haven't been vaccinated. Do you still notice that a majority are unvaccinated and it's not people who haven't gotten that third shot, that they are still protected from hospitalization?
5: Yes, the vast majority of people I see are there because they lack a first and second dose by choice. Not so many people there that lack boosters. There have been immunosuppressed populations that have been not, that, that you, you worry about are high-risk people that, that haven't gotten boosters that should be getting boosted. But the predominant people taking up our ICU beds are those who have chosen not to be vaccinated but have chosen to come to the hospital instead and use that technology, although they shun the technology of the vaccine.
3: Where do we stand? I, because we knew, uh, um, you know, we can all put our forecaster glasses on. We knew that there was going to be a lot of hesitancy about a brand new vaccine, right? You know, kind of uh, released out there. Where do we stand now two years into creating something that is more like how we traditionally made vaccines for COVID-19?
5: Well, the, there are mother, more vaccines that are available that, that are starting to trickle out. Other countries have used vaccines like that. Like, for example, in India, they have a vaccine called Covaxin and, and Novavax, which has still using innovative technology, but more traditional in the sense that it's a protein-based vaccine. Uh, th- that just applied for emergency use authorization uh, by the FDA. So those are going to come. But the thing is, our vaccines work great, and this technology is something all of us have been clamoring for. I would written report after report talking about the promise of mRNA vaccine technology because it's so good, because it's so quick to get, to get a candidate in, into, into people's arms so fast. So to me, it's, it's crazy that people have, have shunned this. Uh, when the polio vaccine came out, people, there was a ticker tape parade uh, for for Jonas Salk here in Pittsburgh, where I'm talking to you from. It's just just mind-boggling to me that people won't embrace this technology. I thought it was this, you know, when, I, when a new iPhone comes out, I run to get that new iPhone. That's what I thought of these mRNA vaccines.
3: How much of that do you think, though, is based on just the last three weeks uh, of what we're seeing? I, I mean, it's vaccinated people, it's people vaccinated and boosted, testing positive for COVID, and even... Though we can, you know, look at, say, a large, okay, you know, positive COVID tests and people who are vaccinated would have fewer symptoms. I think it's pretty easy for somebody to point to, well, hey, you know, everyone I know, vaccinated or unvaccinated, you're getting this new variant of COVID. So why should I uh, even bother? I, I mean, the last few weeks has probably done a big number on what you're just talking about.
5: No, it hasn't, because they can just take a stroll through the intensive care unit and see who they see. That, that's what I would tell them to do. Yeah, you might know people that, got, that are vaccinated and got infected, but do you know people who, who got vaccinated and died? Or do you know people who got vaccinated and ended up in the intensive care unit? Very few of them. People have just a skewed understanding of what these vaccines do, and I would just tell them just spend a day in a hospital and see who's coming in there. That will tell you how efficacious and how valuable these vaccines are.
3: Dr. Adalja, always appreciate the time. Thanks so much. I know you're a busy guy. Dr. Amish Adalja is with Johns Hopkins University talking about uh, not just the kids' COVID vaccine, but for all ages, right there, uh, joining us live this morning. Now, lots of good stuff from Dr. Adalja, lots of good stuff from Terry Connors. Hopefully, everyone learned something a little bit on the show today. I'm going to try and find an igniter for my oven. Will this be a Facebook video? No. Oh. I, don't. I I. mean, I'll be watching other people's videos who did it
0: Yeah, I think this would be a nice Facebook Live for the show Get some social media
3: interaction for the show Yeah, I, maybe that's why I'm not, you know, the best co-host it's because I Who cannot, said you're not the best co-host? Well, I cannot imagine filming myself doing a mediocre chore Thinking that people would watch it
0: Hey, you're a better co-host, at least you show up I, <laughs>
3: but but you know what I mean. Like, I, uh, what? Uh, who would want to watch anybody
0: change? You know anything? I will. I'll, I'll come record it. I'll come film it. No thanks. Hey, I, um, <laughs> real quick, the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees have come out. Did you see the list?
3: Yeah, I saw the list. Uh, you know, like I said, don't care. There's two people on the list. You you can add the New York Dolls. Um, you know they're on the list. But until the MC5 is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, who cares about? They're who's on the list. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're on the list. Well, yeah, they're on the list every year. They need to be. How they have not been in for the last twenty or thirty years? You think they should have been a first ballot? I mean, I think it would be yeah, obvious. Is, a band who changed music. This is the year. This is the year with Duran Duran. See, that's unbelievable to me. That you know, that's the same list that we're putting them on. Yeah, a highly I influential don't band. Uh, band. Changed the way music moved forward in America and
0: around the world. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they'll get in over Duran Duran. Unbelievable. This this is one music thing I do not disagree with you on. I 100% agree. Um, But, no, that's my boycott stands until the MC5 gets in. All right. Hey, Brian, um, enjoy Brian the next two days. I will be in the (laughs) afternoons. (laughs)